An urgent report from the Government Accountability Office is aimed at the State Department. GAO called for State to, its word, expeditiously get on with a cybersecurity risk management program. Now, State has a plan. It just has to carry it out. We get more now from GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity, Jennifer Franks. Ms. Franks, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And what's going on here? Because expeditiously, that was in the headline. That means, like, get on with it already, folks, like now. Absolutely. We've been doing this work on behalf of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and with the urgency of really needing to look at their cybersecurity practices, establishing some roles within this chief information security officer's ability to just carry out protecting the department's systems and networks, and then looking at ways to just better detect, respond, and recover from the evolving cyber threats and cybersecurity incidents We really do need them to take heed to implementing some of these recommendations a little bit swiftly. Because you found they did identify risk management roles and responsibilities, so they have the belly buttons to push, you might say. And they have developed a cyber risk management strategy at state, but then there's a whole stack of X's and red circles that looks really scary, including mitigated the cybersecurity risks. They have not done the actual risk mitigation. Tell us more. Absolutely. So what's key here is they, like you noted, had a cybersecurity strategy in place, which is big because the department-wide guidance for the across the federal agency says, have a plan, have one in place, which is, it's, it's good. So that was a positive, but the Department of State runs in a very insular organization. And this is not unique for state. A lot of organizations do have a very decentralized way of working for their operations. But because of this, state needs to really look at how they assess risk across the different bureaus and really look at the department-wide efforts for identifying and mitigating their cybersecurity risks. We only looked at a subset of their systems, but they have 494 information systems, and only 44% of them had an authorization to operate, which means that they were cleared to actually be online operating in their environment, which also means they had not been fully assessed for risk compliance. Yeah, so the ATO is a crucial part for government operations, for government agencies to have before they can deploy a system. And is that evidence of that decentralized, federated way that they go about this, do you think? Absolutely. Right. So there's no central authority. I mean, well, there's this office of the CIO. The question then becomes, does the State Department CIO and the technology organization and CISO organization under CIO have sufficient sway over these systems to make sure they run through there before they're operated? And that's something that we were finding. They do not. We were actually discovering that Because of a lack of organization, a lack of communication, the CIO actually has very limited ability to see across the different bureaus, see across the organization, and even have that strength of communication and really determine what's going on across those different bureaus. Each of those different bureaus have their different organizations, they have their different funding, they have their own sets of operations that are very insular from where the chief information officer has purview, has the authority to actually say what should be done and what should be authoritatively authorized in that an organization. She only can see what they're permitting her to see. 
So we were asking, or we were even recommending in our report for the CIO to have more authorities, more insight into what's going on across the organization. In other words, it's not enough to be able to set policy for all the sub-organizations, but they have to be able to verify. Absolutely. Got it. And you also found that there is some pretty old stuff running, and that poses a particular risk from just ancient software that may not be updated and might be vulnerable. Absolutely. And why this was critical is because, as we know, uh, evolving cybersecurity vulnerabilities and threats around the globe are increasing every single day. And with the unique evolving mission of the State Department, they manage our national security around the globe. And they have bureaus and posts that protect us around the globe. And because of this, we were actually looking at their abilities to detect, respond to, and even recover from cybersecurity incidents. So because of this, we were actually reviewing their capabilities to have that incident response program in place. So they do have 24-7 operations. They have a team, which is a positive, that is looking at the continuous monitoring efforts to scope their network. Great. But then when you look a little deeper into your security operations and your IT infrastructure, we then found that the hardware and software aspects of what you're using to support your infrastructure, yes, you're running with outdated information, software, hardware. And some of them were going back to 13 years of being end of life. So they're unsupported. We're speaking with Jennifer Franks. She's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. And one other finding that we want to discuss here is they have not implemented a continuous monitoring program. I thought continuous monitoring originally, like 15, 18 years ago, originated at the State Department. And so that's a pretty bad weakness in your cyber operation. Absolutely. And continuous monitoring You're right. It's been around for a while. It's been a metric that all federal agencies have been stated to definitely need to be implementing into their various organizations. This is also an area that would help them to assess the likelihood of events happening in their environments. This would be helpful for being able to better detect and respond to cybersecurity incidents. But this is also a vulnerability or a weakness to their insular approach. They're just large and there's just so much going on. And they had an approach to the strategy again, but because there is so much, they did not really look at the department-wide efforts to really driving home what could then be done to really implementing that continuous wide monitoring program. Essentially, you found that the technical problems with old software and lack of ATO for systems that are running derives from the insulated culture at state. A good example of culture and reality, so to speak, interacting in an important way. Yes. All right. And for GAO even, there's a long list of recommendations here. Fifteen in all, they are all open Just highlight the recommendations for us besides expeditiously get your plan done. Yes, there are 15 in this current report conducting the bureau level risk assessments. There are 28 bureaus that own information systems that we did review. So we are just asking them to look at their abilities to look at cybersecurity across those different bureaus. We want them to develop plans to mitigate the cyber vulnerabilities that they even previously identified. You know, look at what you had open before GAO even got to the agency to audit 
your entities. We want you to look at perhaps ensuring that your information systems have valid authorizations to operate. Again, we only looked at a subset of systems, but there are 494 systems. They all need to be authorized to operate, not just your subset. We want to really increase the ability for the CIO to have more access, more asset ability to look into all the bureaus and the posts around the world so that she can really have that ability to provide continuous monitoring services to look towards how she can help strengthen the controls around the threats and the vulnerabilities that are plaguing the networks for the State Department. We also just want to look at how we're better able to, you know, provide continuous monitoring services, contingency plans in the event of a service disruption, because sometimes cyber events happen. It's not an if, it's a when. So should an event happen? Are we prepared? So having the necessary contingency sure. plans in place to be ready we're going to ask for you to look at those operations. And by the way, the person we've been talking about, CIO, is Dr. Kelly Fletcher. We should mention her by name. She's you know struggling to get this done. But it sounds like this needs to be the deputy secretary for management type of person to really drive this kind of effort above the CIO. Clearly, yes. the secretary of state's got other things to do, but there are deputies that do management. And that yes. seems like that's where the effort needs to start. And we actually direct the recommendations to the secretary. Absolutely. So far, do they agree with most of the recommendations, even though they're not implemented? Absolutely. They have concurred with all of our open recommendations right now, and they are actively starting to work towards implementing them. And we are actively still working with the agency to see that they are carrying forth with their promise. Jennifer Franks is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Expedite the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.